This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. If you have Bibles with you, please uh, open them to the book of 1 Peter. The book of 1 Peter is all the way almost to the back. We've been in an extended series in 1 Peter. This is what we do as a church typically. We pick a book of the Bible and make our way through it systematically uh, because we want to let God set the agenda for us instead of us bringing our agenda to God. And so uh, if you don't have a Bible, we actually have some on the back table. Please grab one on your way out. Uh, we'd love to give that to you just as a gift today. We want everyone to have the Bible in front of them. It is the greatest book of all time. And, uh, and so we want everyone to get their hands on it if, they, if you can. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 2 this morning, reading verses 18 through 25. Just to catch you up and remind you, we, we've come to a section of this letter written by Peter, one of Jesus' main disciples. We've come to a section of the letter where Peter is talking about various opportunities we have as followers of Jesus to bear witness about Jesus. The whole header of this section is in verse 12 of chapter 2, where Peter talks about how we are to live honorable lives of doing good deeds. Not so that people just think that we're a bunch of good people, but so they, they might come to know the goodness and grace of God. How we live matters to God, because how we live can be a testimony to the truth of who God is. That, that, that's, that's the header for this whole section uh, last week we saw how God wants us to live as citizens of the country in which we find ourselves in a way that testifies to his glory. Today, we're going to see how God wants us to live our lives in bearing witness to others through how we respond to those who treat us wrongly. What do you do when people oppose you? What do you do when people oppose you following God. Kids, this is for you. What do you do when you get made fun of for not doing what everyone else is doing but you know is wrong? What, what do you do? Adults, this is for us. What do you do when you get ostracized at work and unfairly represented? When you get passed over for a promotion that you rightly deserve, not included in what's going on, all because... You're a Christian. What, what do you do? What do you do when your family, those who are closest to you, push back against you for following Jesus? What do you do? Being persecuted for our faith is a normal expectation we are to have as followers of Jesus. This is what Jesus clearly said. He said in John Chapter 15, verse 20, if they persecute me, they'll persecute you. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verse 33, in this world, you will have trouble. God is too kind of a father to let us go into this life unwarned about what will happen to us as we follow Jesus. He wants us to know what we can expect to face. Not to provoke fear in us nor to get us kind of geared up to fight some kind of culture war. Okay, it's going to be me against the world. Let's go. No. Being in exile 
Being someone who is not from this world, but is only passing through this world, is meant to profoundly shape and change how we respond to the injustices we can experience in this world. As we don't meet anger with anger, as we don't retaliate, as we don't react, in other words, like the rest of the world, we are bearing testimony to the power of God's love. How we handle our haters matters. So I'm telling this morning's sermon, how to handle our haters, how to handle our haters, we'll read from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 through 25. This is God's word through his servant Peter to us. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but now have returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Praise God for his holy word. May be with us now through the preaching of it, for the glory of Christ. Amen. Amen. Before I start to break this text down, I want to begin by addressing what this text is not saying. Depending on your translation of the Bible, uh, I'm reading from what's known as the ESV, the English Standard Version. Um, the, the word that starts this section, servants, can be translated in various ways. and It can be translated as bondservant, or it can be translated as slave. And so I want to begin by saying this up front and acknowledging that sadly and tragically, this is one of the texts that American slave owners used to justify their evil practice of slavery. And I would not feel right just preaching this and acting like that didn't happen. I think that would lack integrity. So for my black brothers and sisters, I just want to acknowledge that and Acknowledge the pain and continue to learn how to lament that history with you 
and the ongoing realities it has created for you. And, and I want us to be clear that endorsing slavery is not what this text or what any text in the Bible does. We have to understand that slavery in the ancient world was completely different than the horrific practice of our country. In the ancient world, you became a slave one of two ways. One, your country would lose a war. And instead of being killed, you would be given the opportunity to go to work for the country that conquered you. Um, so in that way, actually, it was, it, was, it, was, it was a mercy in some ways. Or two, you went into debt. And you became someone's slave in order to pay off that debt. In both cases, slaves in the ancient world would earn a wage, and they could go free. Every slave would have what's known as a redemption price, a price for their freedom. Also, the laws God gave in the Old Testament explicitly forbid the kind of slavery that was practiced in our country. In Exodus and Deuteronomy, there are three laws regarding this, this practice of slavery. One, you cannot kidnap someone and make them your slave. Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 7. To do so was an offense punishable by death. That should have stopped African slave trade right there. Two, no one was allowed to do physical harm to their slaves. Exodus chapter 21, verses 26 through 27. Three, slaves were to be set free after seven years, the year of Jubilee. Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 through 4. And so we need to be unequivocal on this. There's only one response that God's word gives towards American slavery, and that is to call it evil and outside of his will. Which is why, although people use the Bible to falsely justify slavery, it was Christians like William Wilberforce, who properly understood the Bible, that used the Bible to, to show how slavery was unjustifiable before God and led to be made illegal in Europe and eventually here in America. And it was the Bible that the Christian reverend, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., appealed to again and again as he advocated for equal rights for all people under the law. And so as we consider the continued strain of race relations that exist still in our country, it should be Christians who are using the Bible that should be the forefront of advocating for the equality of all people in all places. But that's a different sermon for another time. I just want to be clear, this text is in no way, in no way justifying slavery whatsoever. We saw in chapter 1 how the context of this letter is that it was written to Christians who are being persecuted for their faith. Because Christianity uh, values the, 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 the dignity and worth of each person, here's what was happening in the ancient world. Um, the, main, the main people groups that were, getting, that were getting saved was not the social elites. It was actually those who were the lower classes. Christianity was spreading like wildfire throughout the serving class. And it's because it's so attractive. It's like, wow, you're saying, you're affirming me in ways that I'm not affirmed by anything else. And so vast numbers of servants were becoming followers of Jesus. And so here Peter's addressing how these servants should interact with their bosses. Those in authority over them. Who might mistreat them for being Christians. He's not saying, he's saying, listen, if you're being a servant and, and you're doing wrong, well, there are consequences for your actions. And some guys, God uses the the hard consequences of our actions to get us back on the right path. But that's not what he's saying. It's, I'm not here to give comfort for those who are suffering from doing wrong. It's when you do right, when you follow God, and now you are experiencing opposition. Opposition by those who are in authority over you. Oh, here, here is comfort. Here's comfort for you. That, that, that's the context that Peter's writing to here. And through this, he's really speaking to us that while, 
we might not be servants, we all have people in authority over us. Not only do we have people in authority over us, I think we all do have people who can at times be opposed to us for following Jesus. As we said last week, if you've never been opposed for following Jesus, perhaps it's because you've not given enough evidence that you are a follower of Jesus. Followers of Jesus should expect opposition, and yet here's how we handle when we have haters. We're going to look this morning at the the opportunity we have in opposition, the opportunity we have in opposition, then we're going to look at the example we have in opposition, then finally, we're going to look at the power we have in opposition. So first, the opportunity we have in opposition. The call in both verses 19 and 20 is that when we are suffering unjustly, our response is to be endurance. We'll look at what endurance means a little bit when we get to point two. But for right now, what I want us to see is that notice what God says will happen as we endure. As we endure, there's an opportunity that's being given to us. Look at verse 19 and 20 again. It says, for this is a gracious thing, meaning when you endure. This is a gracious thing when one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. Verse 20. If when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, again, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, endurance is a gracious thing in the sight of God. What does it mean it's a gracious thing? Well, verse 20 says, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten, you endure? So it's making, it's making a link between saying you won't get credit if you uh, are, are, are suffering for things that you do wrong, implying what? You will get credit if you suffer things that are right. And so what, what's this gracious thing? It's, it's linking this idea of, of, of credit really is an idea of reward. Je- Jesus says this in Luke chapter 6. The same words are being paired together. He says, if you love those who love you, what credit is it to you? But if you love your enemies, there's a reward for you. Peter's with Jesus when he said that, and so he's just repeating what he heard his master say. It's saying that there's a reward. The gracious thing God gives us is a reward for when we suffer for his sake. When we do what God says and suffer for it, what we experience might be terrible. But God never allows what is suffered for him to go unrewarded by him. Because when we are suffering for following God, here's what we're doing. We're saying that whatever we are unjustly experiencing, we're saying God is worth it. We're saying God is worth it. And God always rewards those who value him. There's a story in Genesis of a man named Jacob who fell in love with a woman named Rachel. He went to her father and said, hey, if you let me marry her, um, you know, what do I need to do for you? And the father said, we need to work for me for seven years. I'm trying to work that out with one of my daughters too. Let's get that, let's get that going. Um, so Jacob says, no problem. I'm going to go work for you for seven years. So, so he works for seven years. And at the end of seven years, Rachel's dad, who's named Laban, says, okay, you know, let's have a wedding ceremony. Let's, let's do it at night. That seems a little shady, but, but no big deal. Um, so, so at night, you know, Jacob, Jacob's, he's all ready for his bride. She comes in, in the dark, in the veil. They didn't have lights back then, but he's just so happy. They, they, they get married, right? And then he wakes up the next morning and it's not Rachel with him. It's Leah, you know, he experienced injustice. What does he do? He works another seven years for Rachel because he thought Rachel was worth suffering for. 
Verse, verse 19 says that when we endure hardship and we are mindful of God, what are we doing? We're honoring God because we're saying God is worth suffering for. And God does not let anyone who honors him go unrewarded by him. You know, you know Satan loves to stir up trouble against us, to discourage us from following God. So Satan loves to make the cost of following Jesus seem high and to make it feel high. But friends, when we stay the course, when we continue to honor God, no matter what it might cost us, then what the enemy sends to destroy us only serves to bring greater reward to us. See, our God is too much of a God to allow injustices that we suffer for him to be something that go unrewarded by him. No, he makes all the opposition we face an opportunity we have to bring him glory. And as we bring him glory... By saying, you are worth it, no matter what I have to lose because of following you, no matter what I have to experience because of following you, I'm going to follow you. You are worth it to me. God rewards those who value him. And so, when your boss asks you to fudge the numbers and you refuse, because you know God calls you to live with integrity, and you lose your job as a result, or when all your classmates are cheating, but you refuse to do so. Or they're gossiping, uh, but you refuse to enter in and speak bad about someone. Or they're laughing at things that you know God hates, and so you turn away. Uh, you don't go to that party and get wasted like everyone else. And so you're ostracized. You lose friends. You are lonely. Or when your family mocks you for being a Christian. Gives you a hard time for participating and something as dumb as a church. Satan wants to use those things to discourage you. But God is giving an opportunity to you. The opportunity to know him. To value him. And be rewarded by him. Growing up, I loved on a summer night when my parents would give out glow sticks. Anyone else ever get those glow sticks growing up? Right? You, remember, you remember how they worked? You, you, you take it, be a necklace or bracelet or stick or whatever, you take it and, and you'd have to bend it and break it. And, and there was, I guess, little chemicals inside that, that once you broke them, they would interact and, and then that would make it glow. In order to break those capsules, in order to make those things glow, you had to bend them really hard. Without bending, there's no breaking. Without breaking, there's no glowing. Listen, friends, we might go through some things in life that, that bend us, and that feel like they are breaking us. But God will not let that be the end of us. I really believe someone needs to hear this today. Your suffering is not the end of your story. Your current hardships that you're experiencing for following Jesus are not the end of your story. If you are following God, then regardless of what you might be going through, God is going to get you through because your story is headed for glory. Your story is headed for glory. Your reward is coming and will be given for your faithfulness to him. Opposition is really like a hammer. It can either break us or it can build us. When we see opposition as an opportunity sent to us by God to glorify him and be rewarded by him, then it doesn't break us down, it just builds us up. Because no matter how hard we get hit, all that suffering is doing to us is pressing us further into Christ and our faith. In him. Friends, we have an incredible opportunity in opposition. We have an incredible opportunity. And we have an example 
that we can follow. We're not meant to just figure this out by ourselves. No, we, we have an example in opposition. Let's look at that, the example we have in opposition. Jesus doesn't just tell us to go do a hard thing. No, look at verse 21. For to this you have been called. Right? We're actually, we've been called to suffer for God. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. God does not tell us just to endure suffering. No, he came and showed us what it looks like to endure. Commentator Pierre Davids helps us to understand what this word example here means. He says that the term example is not simply that of a good example that one is exhorted to copy, but the pattern letters that a schoolchild must carefully trace if he or she will ever learn to write. What we've been called to here is to look to Jesus and to trace his example onto the canvas of our lives. Now, I think sometimes we see the example of Jesus, and it's easy for us to write that off because it's like, well, easy for him, like, he's God, right? I'm not God, so, so how can I possibly follow that? Well, let's be clear. Experiencing injustice was not easy for Jesus because he was God. No, in fact, it was actually much, much harder. It was much, much harder. See, Jesus, he had all power to wreak havoc on those who did him wrong. We are, we are limited in our power. Like, we might want to retaliate, but let's be honest. The reason that we don't always retaliate is just because we can't. Like, I remember one time I, in high school, someone really did me dirty, and I stay up all night just trying to think about how can I get this person back without also getting in trouble and ending up in jail. Um, and the reality is I, I, I couldn't do all the things I was tempted to do because it was not in my power to do it. Jesus' power is limitless. He could have wiped out his enemies and not only done that, but he could have been totally and would have been totally justified in doing so. If anyone was ever tempted to say they started it, it was Jesus. He's actually the only one who can legitimately ever say that. He, he is the only truly innocent sufferer. He had, he had the power and the right to stop his suffering. But he didn't. He endured. And so what does that mean? That means that, verse 22, he committed no sin. Now there was deceit found in his mouth. So he didn't lie to get out of trouble. He didn't lie to retaliate against those who were causing him trouble. Verse 23, when he was reviled, hated, he did not revile or hate in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, or if you do this to me, I'm going to do this back to you. No. No. He, he endured. So here we begin to get a picture of what God means by endurance. Endurance is not responding in kind to the wrongs done against us. Endurance is not returning evil for evil. Now, this doesn't mean that you're a doormat and don't get away from toxic situations. If you are being treated wrongly, you might need to leave. But what we can't do, what Jesus didn't do, is respond to wrongs done against us with sin. Jesus never allowed the sinful actions against him to provoke a sinful response from him. That, that word endure means to suffer 
long. It's very similar to the word for patience. It's the idea of having a long fuse. I'm willing to suffer this. I'm willing to endure this. I'm willing to absorb this and not blow up against you. Jesus did not retaliate when he was wrong. What did he do? He responded with love and service. He responded with love and service. Right now, it's very popular in our culture to talk about power dynamics and to try to use power dynamics as the, the answer to everything. And so, um, you know, the way to deal with oppression is just to empower other people. And, you know, you create actually all, all you do when you have power from some, you, you give it to others. And what's that doing in the world? Well, it's creating a whole lot of conflict between now people fighting over power. Jesus did not come to fight power with power. That's not his way. For Jesus, this isn't about power dynamics. It's not about meaning force with force. It's instead about meaning oppression with love. When others are angry, the follower of Jesus is peaceful. When others are mean, the followers of Jesus are kind. When others treat us wrongly, followers of Jesus seek to do good to them. Jesus gives us an example of what endurance looks like when suffering unjustly. Is not responding to how we've been treated, but actually responding in the exact opposite way. Responding to hate with love, to unkindness with service. And in doing this, he not, he not only gives us an example of what this looks like, he also gives us an example of how we can actually do this. How, how do we actually respond that way? Did you notice that his motivation for doing so is given to us in verse 23? Why did he not respond in kind? Why did he not threaten? Why? Because he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Jesus did not respond with sin to his suffering. Why? Because he trusted the Father. His reference point for how he interacted with those who were doing him harm was not his own hurt. He did not see himself primarily as a victim but primarily as a son of his heavenly father. And he trusted his father to act on his behalf. And so he didn't feel a need to take things into his own hands. He, he entrusted himself to God as he suffered for God. And so listen, enduring suffering doesn't mean that we just act like it's not that big a deal. I think it's what we can do sometimes. We just downplay it. Oh, it's not that hard. It's not that hard. It's not that hard. No, it might be really hard. It might be a massively big deal. And to God, well, all suffering that God's children endure is suffering that God is not okay with. Psalm 56 paints the picture of God hurting for our hurts. And that our tears of pain are so precious to him that he actually holds them in a bottle close to his heart. God never minimizes what we go through but he does ask us to trust him that he's going to deal with it. Jesus trusted that God would act justly. And it was by trusting God to act on his behalf that Jesus like, I don't have to take it up with my enemies. My father's got my back. He, he knew that he didn't have to respond to the evil done against him because the father knew what was happening to him. The father saw. The father cared. And the Father would judge 
justly. Which did not mean that Jesus was spared from his suffering. But it did mean that the end of his story was his glory and the defeat of his enemies. Jesus' suffering led to his death. Him trusting God to come through meant that he actually had to go all the way down to the grave. But his enemies did not get the final word. We we read this in Acts chapter 2. Wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. We talk about suffering unjustly. Wicked men put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But Jesus did not react. He did not retaliate. Why? He entrusted himself to God. And here's what God did. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Listen, Jesus trusted God all the way to the grave, and God did not fail him there. But death had to yield its hold on him as God's greater power called forth Christ from the grave and Jesus emerged from that empty stone in vindication of who he is and in triumph over the enemies of death and Satan. Jesus endured by trusting God to act, not by demanding how God would act or when God would act. Jesus said, not my will, but your will be done the night before he died. He, 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 he submitted himself to God, whatever that was going to cost him, because he knew that God would never leave him. And God did not abandon him, not even in the grave. But the Father triumphed over his enemies. Those who sought to end his life led to the vindication of Jesus' life. And so commenting on this, as we consider him who judges justly, We need to understand this motivation. Commentator Thomas Schreiner says it this way. The scriptures nowhere teach that believers can refrain from retaliation because they become stoics in suffering and put on a brave face. It's not what this is saying here. Just just bear it. No, rather, believers triumph over evil because they trust that God will vindicate them and judge their enemies, putting everything right in the end. And so listen, friends, how we endure when people act against us, how we don't retaliate is by knowing that whoever is against us isn't greater than the the Father who is for us. And the one who did not abandon Christ to the grave will not abandon us now. And so we endure by entrusting ourselves to him. We don't take matters into our own hands because we trust his hands. In fact, whenever we do take matters into our own hands, whenever we do return evil for evil, whenever we do retaliate in kind, we are distrusting God. We like to blame people. Well, they pushed me. They, they did this to me, so I had to do this to him. But we need to understand that how we treat others is ultimately not about others. How we treat others reveals what we truly believe about God. Do we believe that God is the one who is going to act? Or are we not trusting him to get it right this time? And so we got to act. Friends, we don't have to retaliate when we trust that God will vindicate. We don't have to retaliate when we trust that God will vindicate. Imagine what a comfort this must have been to these believers. Again, let's not forget the, the context here. They're watching their husbands and wives and children being dragged into the Colosseum 
and ravaged by wolves. What does Jesus say? Don't retaliate. Don't take up arms. Don't fight the culture. Entrust yourself to God. These people were willing to entrust themselves even to the point of death because they were following the example of the one who went to death and who came back again. Friends, how much more so for us? Can we follow Jesus' example and whatever we might go through and trust ourselves to God? And so I don't have to take matters into my hand. I don't have to respond the same type of way I'm being treated. I can respond with kindness. I trust God's going to make it all right. We have an example in opposition. But not only that, friends, we have power. We also have an example. We have power. In verse 24, if you notice, there's a shift. From Peter talking about what Jesus did as an example to us, to him talking about what Jesus suffered for us. Verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Notice Peter has now shifted. He is not talking about here's how you follow Jesus and his example. He's talking about here's what Jesus has done for you. See, Jesus is not only the example we need to look to, he is the Savior that we need. Because while we can suffer unjustly, we can also sin unrighteously. We're not just those who have wrongs done to us, we are those who do wrongs ourselves. And so we don't just need God to get our backs when someone sins against us, we need God to save us from our sins which is what Jesus came to do. He came to bear our sins so that we wouldn't have to. See, the God who judges justly will never, indeed he can never, turn a blind eye to wrongs, which is a comfort when we think about the wrongs done to us. Yes, God's not going to turn a blind eye to that. That's a comfort to know. Well, it's also scary to think about when we consider that we also do wrong. Sin must be, must always be punished. And God's sentence for sin is clear. God gave us life to live for Him, and so when we live instead in disobedience to Him, what do we owe God? We owe God back our lives. Romans is very clear. The judgment for our sins is death. And not just physical death, but eternal separation from God of life. What a horror it would be to have to bear our sins. I mean, just think about it. Think about being alone with the worst parts of yourself forever. But Jesus came. And he bore our sins in his body on the tree. At that hill called Calvary. He bore our sins. God's existed as a triune being of love. Father, Son, and Spirit. One God, three persons. God's existed as a triune being of love within himself for all eternity. 
So for all eternity, Jesus has dwelt with the Father in uninterrupted harmony and, and love. But on that day, on the day where he bore our sins, as he cast his eyes to heaven, his cry became, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cast his eyes to heaven and his face was not met with the comforting gaze of the Father. For the Father had turned his back on Christ. Because Christ was buried out sins. Habakkuk 1.13 says that God's eyes are too pure to even look at sin. And so on that day, it was not the face of the loving Father who looked down on Christ. But the fierce gaze of the holy judge. Pouring out his wrath for the sins that Christ was bearing. And the voice that for all eternity has been one of love and assurance became the voice of condemnation. As Jesus had our sins placed upon him. No longer is this the beloved son. You are greedy, is how God was treating him. You are lazy. You are gluttonous and a slander and a gossip. God was viewing Christ as someone who was a, a liar and conceited and ungrateful. He, he treated Jesus as someone who hears God's voice and denies what God says, who, who profanes the gifts of marriage and instead indulges in sexual immorality, who consumes pornography and fills their minds with vulgarity, who, who hates and murders people with anger fired from the bolts of their own heart, who oppresses the poor and, and ignores the needy. He treated them as someone who loves money and honor and prestige and chases those idols. Someone who is lukewarm in their faith that gives lip service to God while selling out for the things of the world. He treated Jesus as someone who is filled with envy and rage and bitterness and unforgiveness. He saw Christ and he saw our sin on him. And, and we can be people who even, we don't even say we have sin and we blame people for our sin. We're too proud sometimes to even call it sin. He saw Christ and he saw him as someone who, whose words do not impart grace and encouragement, but instead whose mouth can be biting and tearing people down and filled with obscene talk. He saw Christ as someone who mocks his parents and eagerly seeks to disobey. He saw Christ as someone who has no self-control, who does not trust him, who blasphemes against him as the list of humanities go on and on and on. Friends, as the list of our sins goes on and on and on. Jesus bore them on the cross. The public things that people know and the private things that only you know. Christ knows. Because he became them. He bore them on that tree. Friend, if you are here and you have trusted in Jesus, then you need to know all your sins. 
all your sins have been borne by Jesus Christ. You know what that means for you? That means they've been removed from you. They were born by him so that they could be removed from you. And so Christian, what this means is that we do not, we, we cannot, if we placed our faith in Jesus, we cannot carry around the guilt of our sin anymore because we wake up each day not bearing our sins. We wake up each day experiencing the forgiveness and love and acceptance of God because Jesus bore our sins. We don't wake up bearing our sins because he already did. If you're living in condemnation, if you're living in self-wallowing, oh, I'm such a terrible person, why are you picking up the cross that Jesus already died on? There is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ because he dealt with it all on that hill called Calvary. Jesus bore our sins. Now I do not want to move on but we have to bring this sermon to a close. I do not want to move on quickly without inviting people who are either here or listening online to put your faith in Christ. You have two options today. You can continue to bear your sins or you can entrust someone to bear them for you. You can continue to bear your sins and live under the judgment of God or you can place your faith in Jesus who experienced that judgment for you. And you can let him bear those sins for you. Friend, today, if you place your faith in him, today can be the day of your salvation. Not because of what you have done. Because you are trusting in your sin-bearing Savior and what he has done. And I pray that you would put your faith in Jesus today. And give your life to him. And as we do that, you know what? The good news of Jesus only gets better. Because not only has Jesus borne our sins and taken away our guilt, but in his bearing, he also killed sins whole in our lives and released his resurrection power in us. Look at how verse 24 goes on. It doesn't just say he bore our sins and his body on the tree, mean that we're forgiven. Why did he do this? That we might die to sin and live to righteousness. See, on the cross, Jesus secured not only the removal of sin's guilt, but also he secured our release from sin's bondage. He didn't just die to forgive us of our sins. He died to break the power of sin over our lives. Jesus died for what we do wrong so that we would no longer have to be enslaved to that wrong, but instead could be empowered to live for his righteous ways. This is why verse 25 says, we were those, notice in the past tense, we were those who were straying. Meaning we don't have to stray anymore. No, we can return and follow Jesus as our shepherd. We can follow him where he leads. We can now no longer have our ears plugged against his voice. But no, we can listen to him as our overseer, as the one who is in charge. Friends, it is not true that you've just been forgiven. It's true that you've been forgiven, but it's also true that you've been empowered. And we live less of Christianity if we only think about the forgiveness of Christ without realizing that he has died to set us free. I heard a pastor say once that it's a very actually pretty popular thing to say now because, you know, everyone wants to be real and authentic. Say, hey, it, it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to not be okay. You know, on the one hand, that is true. It is, that is true. We don't have to clean ourselves up to come to God. None of us are perfect. I certainly am not. 
We all have our sins and our struggles. And so we need to be honest about how we are not always okay. So in that sense, it should be okay to not be okay. But friends, it's not okay to stay not okay. Because we are believing a lie and denying the power of Jesus if we just resign ourselves to being victims who can't help but sin. No, while on earth, we will never be sinless. By the grace of God and his power at work in us, we can sin less. And so we should not profane the cross of Christ and empty of its, of its power by diminishing what Jesus has done. And making it some kind of fire insurance that gets us out of hell instead of a transformative power that changes us from the inside out and prepares us for heaven. Friends, I think someone needs to hear this today. You can have victory over your sin. That sin that you just keep besetting, why do I keep going back and I just can't change? You can't, but he can. You might feel like a victim, but he's a victor. And in Christ, you can die to that sin and you can live for righteousness. And here's, here's very practically how this works. Very practically how this works when we're suffering unjustly. When we're experiencing injustice, I think there can be this rise within us to want to fight for what we feel like we deserve. Right? I'm being treated wrongly. I don't deserve that way. And so that, that's what's causing the rub. Like, we don't respond the same way when we, when we know we did something wrong and we experience the consequences of it. Like, there's not that same rise that happens within us. It's when we suffer unjustly. That there's this rise we have that happens within us. But what do we do? We don't have to live captive to that feeling and react out of that feeling. No, what can we do? Here's what the power of Christ can do. Here's the power of Christ can do. As we see what Jesus has done for us. Friends, that should make our sense of entitlement give way to gratitude. Listen, people might wrong us. <laughs> Let's be clear. We've done far more wrong against God than anyone's ever done against us. And yet, how did God treat us? Christ came and bore our sins so that we would never have to be judged for them. And so in those moments, in those moments when I can feel so powerfully that there's no other option but to react, retaliate against these wrongs done against me, I'll be honest, I can be there. When it's fight or flight, I'm a fighter all the way. Don't test me. But I do remember that there's a greater power in me than these feelings arising from my heart. And it's the power of what Jesus did for me. It's the power Jesus did for you. See, contemplating our sin-bearing Savior should change us from thinking about how we've been wronged to instead grateful for what Jesus has made right. What Jesus has done is so powerful, friends, that we can't long think of it without being changed by him. Jesus is so powerful that we can't long think about him without being changed by him. And so the power we have in opposition is not the power of our willpower. It's the power to gaze upon the beauty of Christ. And as we look at him, then whatever gets thrown against us, we don't respond in kind. Because through the power of Jesus, we can follow the example of Jesus. I'll close with this story. A little bit ago, I was at the barbershop. Love going to the barbershop. I was at the barbershop, and I was getting my hair cut. And this dad comes in with his son. The son is freaking out. 
you must be terrified of barbers, which, you know, from a small child's perspective, I get. Like, a stranger coming at your, you know, your head with, like, sharp objects, like, that's a scary thing, you know? And parents tell kids all the time, stranger danger, stay away, but then they want to strap them in a chair and let someone come at them with, like, Ezra's scissor hands. Like, I get why a kid is freaking out, right? But what did the dad do? Dad said, all right, you know, it's okay, sit here. And he says, watch me. The dad sits in the chair and gets his haircut. And then he invites the son to come sit on his lap. And as the dad holds him, the son gets his haircut. See, it was through following the example of his dad and feeling the strength of his father's arms that was enough to get that little boy through that experience. And so, friends, you today might be having some people come at you with sharp knives, sharp knives of words, sharp knives of mistreatment all kinds of things that could be coming to you that you feel like present a danger to you. How we get through that experience, how we can handle our haters is by looking to the example of Jesus. He sat in the chair. He, he showed us how to get through. And not only that, but he invites us to sit on his lap. To be held by him and to trust his power that's keeping us. And so friends, how we endure unjust treatment is by looking to the example of our suffering Savior and being empowered by what he did for us. Let's bow our heads and pray.